think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we're talking with Ember Kelly, or you might know her as at Kami Theology on Twitter. Uh, a lot of really good hot takes and also a lot of very good pictures of China and Vietnam lately. So that's worth following for that alone, I think. Um, really excited to talk to her about her experience uh, in the weird world of evangelicalism and also uh, her experience sort of working through communism and uh, coming out on the other side, I guess, uh, by moving to a communist country. Um, lots of really neat stuff ahead. Uh, before we do that, a couple of quick housekeeping notes. One, uh, if you don't remember from last week or didn't listen to that episode yet, I'm going to teach a class at the Institute for Christian Studies in January. Um, I can say more about it at the very, very end, but just flagging that because it's coming up real soon and you can register for it starting this week and it is super cheap. Uh, I think it's like 90 bucks Canadian. Um, and it's all online, so you can do it from wherever you want and make some good Christian communist friends uh, reading some really cool stuff together. Great, let's get into it. Hey, so this week we're talking with Ember Kelly uh, about her experience in China and Vietnam and probably some other stuff too. Um, so, Ember, uh, for people who don't know who you are or what you're about, um, can you just like give us a brief intro and uh, uh, tell us what you're kind of about, uh, who you are, what you're interested in, etc. Yeah, so uh, my name is Ember Kelly. Uh, some may know me from Twitter as uh, Kami Theology, um, uh, a screen name that I chose quite a while ago. Uh, I am a uh, recent uh, graduate of Chicago Theological Seminary, just graduated this last May. Um, and during my time there, I got interested in communism uh, that, that's the uh, you know two second version uh, but uh, I began to uh, research uh, Marxism Leninism and research communism a bit more uh, and during my time there started to do some work in terms of uh, thinking about the intersections of uh, theology and revolutionary socialism uh, and I think that a lot of that was uh, trying to push beyond just like a, a typical 
liberal sort of uh, liberation theology. I think some of the liberation theology in the U.S. gets uh, stuck in very liberal politics. Uh, but since then, I've uh, developed a major interest in like Asian socialism uh, and uh, particularly the works of Liu Xiaoqi, uh, who wrote How to Be a Good Communist, uh, and also Juche uh, theology, or, well, Juche and theology, uh, thinking of Juche out of uh, the DPRK. Uh, so a pretty wide variety of interests. Uh, and for now, uh, having graduated from seminary uh, in May, and that was actually my second time through seminary, I have taken a little bit of a uh, theology sabbatical um, and have been uh, teaching abroad, uh, but also that's given me a chance to get firsthand experience uh, living in uh, communist countries. Nice. Thanks for that. That's a really great summary of some cool stuff that you're about. Uh, there is a ton that we want to ask you about, so we thought maybe we would divide the episode into two parts and just sort of take it in chunks and we'll see. I mean, probably that will not be a very clean division, but we'll do our best. Um, so first we, I mean, we're going to get to all the communism stuff in a minute here. Uh, but also we were interested in hearing a little bit about your experience as a trans person, both in Christian communities and in communist communities. So maybe we'll talk about some issues surrounding uh, that uh, first in the first half, and then we'll talk about communism after. So um, yeah, anything kind of, really significant jump out um, to kind of lead us into that conversation for you? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, half of uh, uh, half of my journey uh, to communism and looking at communism and theology uh, started as being like uh, a trans person talking about theology on Twitter. Uh, and then I, uh, you know, I had all sorts of nice, respectable followers on Twitter back then. Uh, and <laughs> um, uh, I was always talking about like being a trans woman and uh, trying to pursue a call towards ordination. Um, and then I started following more and more radical people on Twitter uh, during different social movements, especially like uh, uh, the Baltimore uprising. Um, and uh, right around that time, I started following a few communists on Twitter and then it just kind of went downhill from there. Uh, but I think being a trans woman in Christian circles is part of what radicalized me, that I realized that just um, fighting for a little bit of change was not quite enough. Um, and uh, especially coming from also a really evangelical background, um, uh, I you know, still saw many of the same uh, issues that I had with uh, acceptance as a trans woman in uh, evangelical background, I saw many of the same issues still being uh, there in many liberal circles, but that they were just kind of covered over like, oh, you know, we just got to respect everybody's opinion. Um, that uh, being trans has really radically affected my journey uh, theologically and in terms of uh, socialism. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm really curious to maybe dig in a little bit further into the evangelical stuff in particular, uh, because I know that you lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a little bit. And I lived there for a while as well. Um, and people might know Grand Rapids as Betsy DeVos country. I guess that's kind of what it's known for these days. But it's also something like an evangelical gravity well in the United States. So there's a ton of like publishers there, like Zondervan or Erdman's or Baker. And there's like a mess of uh, Dutch Reformed people that live there. 
Um, and you also spent some time at Kuiper College, you were telling me earlier, which is pretty crazy because now I go to a Christian Reformed school as well. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that whole situation and maybe retrospectively, you know, how has all of your uh, more recent experience sort of shed light on some of those experiences you've had living in such a like weird <laughs> Christian saturated kind of place? Yeah, so actually, even uh, prior to ending up in the um, the mecca of Reformed Christianity of uh, Grand Rapids, uh, the um, before that, uh, before Reformed Christianity, I had uh, even uh, more interesting background. I um, my family jumped around from like a Nazarene church to a Baptist church, and then to a non denominational church, which was really just a Baptist church. Um, and then, but then at the same time, I was also attending a Pentecostal, um, elementary, middle, and high school. Uh, it was with an Assemblies of God, um, uh, it was an Assemblies of God related, uh, school. Uh, they were the ones that funded it. And, uh, so I had lots and lots of different Christianity exposure during my time. Um, and so, uh, right around the end of high school, um, uh, I started dating someone who was Christian Reformed, and that's really the only way that uh, Reformed Christianity gains new converts, um, is marrying them in or giving birth to them. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, uh, so I started going to a Christian Reformed church, and uh, it really appealed to me because it was kind of you know the opposite of this uh, Pentecostal and Baptisty uh, hyper emotionalness that I had. Uh, growing up with, and you know, I was very much on the search for like more logical answers, and was not really ever finding those. Besides, just like read your Bible, and God will speak to you. Um, and I was like, okay, but I want some real answers to these tough questions that I'm asking. Um, but I mean, at the same time, you know, it really influenced me. I wrote like a, I was in like eighth grade, and wrote like a letter to the editor for our local newspaper about why evolution was evil. Um, <laughs> So I was, you know, really wholesale had bought into Christian theology, but at the same time was um, having trouble finding some answers and some doubts. And I think in the back of my mind, um, struggling with being trans was uh, part of that. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe if I could just find like a Christianity that has all the answers, I'm going to feel better about this. Um, and Christian Reformedness uh, seemed to have a little bit more history. You know, they could at least point to like John Calvin. Uh, and Augustine, you know, so Jesus, Paul, Augustine, John Calvin, um, apostolic succession of the Reformed faith. Um, and uh, so I um, was excited. I was also super obsessed with history as like a high schooler. So it just felt a little bit deeper and a little bit more like there might be the answers here. Um, and pretty much not too long after I started reading, uh, you know, Reformed theology, and I joined the joined the Christian Reformed Church, and then started reading Catholic books, uh, kind of on accident. I picked one up at the library just because I thought it looked interesting. Um, and so, um, while I headed off to go to a uh, Reformed Reformed Bible College, as it was called, and then it became Kuiper College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and as I was uh, headed there, I'm reading these books about Catholic stuff, uh, and I got introduced to a local Catholic priest in Grand Rapids, and I started going to a Catholic church. And by the end of my first year at Reformed Bible School, I was Catholic. Um, 
So then, you know, I knew that I had found the one real church and that uh, it was going to have all the answers, but it turned out that wasn't really the case either. Um, so looking back, I think it was perhaps a, a last ditch attempt to stay in the closet too. Um, like I was sort of coming to terms by then with the, with the fact that I was trans um, and being more open with myself about it. Um, but I, um, I think I thought that, you know, it, with Hail Marys and Our Fathers and Rosaries that I might be able to pray myself away from the temptation of being trans. Um, that maybe, just maybe, uh, this would be the solution. Um, but it turned out not to really be the case. Um, and, uh, then by, uh, the end of my sophomore year of, uh, time at Kuiper, so that was about 2008, um, I was starting to actually come out of the closet. I came out to a therapist uh, and to my family. Um, and then I started dating someone who I'm now married to. And I came out to her um, and started really just coming out to all of my friends. Uh, so by then it was, you know, kind of the cats out of the bag. And I was still sticking with the Catholic thing. We got married in a Catholic church. Um, but... You know, it was as much as I loved so many things about the Catholic Church that um, I thought were really great. Um, and, you know, some nice, cool theology, like with the Eucharist and things like that. Um, I just, I couldn't be, you know, tithing to uh, an organization where the funds went to, like, explicitly political stuff to oppose LGBT rights. Um, so that um, kind of ended... Uh, any sort of desire to remain Catholic. And I jumped to the Lutheran church um, <laughs> and spent a little time there um, before uh, in the ELCA. I, and I met with someone to talk about, oh, hey, what if I want to be a pastor? You know, it seems you're okay with trans pastors. And they were like, well, is this going to be something you talk with your congregants about? And I was like, eh, that's not really a good start to this whole conversation. Um, and so I took a little break and then I ended up joining the UCC, uh, which is where I've settled into now, though, uh, realistically living abroad, uh, haven't really figured out the church situation yet. Um, but, um, yeah, I settled into the UCC and that's how I ended up going to, uh, Chicago seminary. So that's my very abbreviated life theological slash coming out journey. Um, you know, just for. Perhaps uh, maybe you've got some questions from there so we can head into a specific area instead of just a rabbit hole of keeping going about everything. Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thanks for just kind of sharing all that with us. I think it's, I really love hearing people's stories and about just like how they get to be the people they are. And um, it's really lovely. Dean and I both have sort of like some evangelical stuff in our background. And I know for me, it has been, um, I think, largely a negative influence on my life. Um <laughs> I don't know. Evangelicalism has a lot of really weird things going on with it, especially with regards to gender and sexuality. In a previous episode, we talked about uh, how bad kissing, dating, goodbye is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it brings back high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of... Um, definitely gives me some some the shakes again. Um, anyways, uh, how do you think evangelicalism, as someone who's kind of run the gambit of religious stuff, <laughs> how does evangelicalism shape people's sexuality and sexual identities? Or at least, how do you think that it shaped yours? Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, recently, uh, I had a conversation with uh, Roland Bohr of uh, Marxist theology fame. Um, and we talked about, you know, shared sort of backgrounds and and 
theological circles and uh he talked a lot about um you know trying to understand and also own a little bit of the influence that uh that it had on you uh, which i've always thought was interesting because especially for me um evangelicalism just has so much negative baggage like you know i look at these people that are like uh, still you know they're trying to be like liberal evangelicals like i'm an open-minded evangelical like and that that to me is just like i just don't understand like why even stick with that label like it's just got so much baggage for me um and i mean like the the school that the pentecostal school that i went to like you know we prayed for george w bush uh in the iraq war um and we prayed you know against the the gay agenda trying to take over in the world um and that you know george bush was going to be a brave fighter against the gay agenda um and you know definitely in terms of like gender and sexuality like oh wow did that give me some baggage um you know i think um uh, especially like you know even hearing that and so i was like well if being gay is that evil like what how horrible must i be as like a trans person because like they don't even talk about that like you know that must be even worse um and like, I, I remember, you know, when I was uh, Ask Jeevesing or um, using other such pre-Google search engines, um, looking up, like, uh, transgender Christians. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I found that there were, like, some others. And I was like, oh, wow, maybe this is, like, a thing. But, like, then, like, my evangelical mind was like, no, they're not real Christians. Like, they've given up on, on the real gospel and they're heretics and um you know i think that so much of that baggage has uh still stuck with me and like i think um like looking at my um desire to be like this very out trans woman christian and like uh, you know i was for a little bit actively really trying to become like a head pastor sort of person you know i think so much of it was trying to prove like, yeah, I can be trans and a Christian because I had all this baggage of like, no, you can't. And, you know, um, Oh, I mean, in, in terms of gender itself, like we, you know, I had so many friends like, uh, and always talking to me about like the, I kiss dating goodbye and stuff and giving me grief when I actually did start dating, like, no, you should be doing courtship. Um, <laughs> and, all these crazy things and it's just, um, you know, like I, I feel like there's just times where I just discover like, n you know, deep hidden things of like how evangelicalism is like still in the back of my mind, um, or influencing the way I think about something like, um, you know, especially, uh, so much guilt. And I think like, even there's a sense that, um, you know, even like, you know, having my fancy new theological education, um, that in the back of my mind, there's part of me that's like, well, what if I'm going to hell? Like, what if I'm actually all wrong about this? And all these evangelicals that, you know, brainwashed me as a, <laughs> as a child, um, what if they, um, <laughs> what if they're actually right? And I really am just going to hell. And then I'm like, well, I guess it's worth it <laughs> because I really don't want to be in evangelical circles anymore. So I'm good with that. I still, you know, as misguided as I think evangelicals are, like 
I don't say they're not Christians. Like they're Christians, they're horribly misguided, and I think they have some absolutely horrible theology that's damaging to people's lives. But I wouldn't go so far as to be like they're not Christians. Whereas in the reverse, uh, an evangelical person for ninety nine percent of the time is not going to give me that same mm. uh, benefit. They're going to say I'm an apostate and that I believe not real Christianity and that I've been lied to sort of thing uh, in the UCC, the UCC probably like the devil's denomination or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and I, uh, that was basically what I told her. I was like, it's really hard to be nice to uh, evangelicals when they're not particularly nice to me. Um, so yeah, I mean, oof, growing up as a trans woman in evangelical background. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think luckily during my time, at Chicago Theological Seminary. I finally started unpacking that a little bit more and kind of moving past it um, and the influence uh, that it had. But yeah, so that's that's my uh, gut reactions about evangelicalism and sexuality and gender and gender identity uh, is that it can be really, really damaging. Yeah, uh, well, like Matt said before, thanks for sharing that part of your story as well. Um, so it's kind of awkward to ask people, like, hey, can you tell us about this really rough time that you had? Um, but I'm really thankful that you did. I, I really appreciate that um, part of the story, especially. Uh, and I I guess as we pivot to talking a little bit more about communism, maybe I want to talk a little bit more about that, if that's fine with you, uh, specifically talking about how, I mean, Christianity has a weird history with LGBT folks, but so does communism. Um, I was just thinking about here in Toronto, I have a trans Christian friend who used to be a member of a communist group um, in the city decades ago, but left because that group was really transphobic at the time. Um, But nowadays, that same friend of mine is back hanging around with those um, that communist group today, because uh, at least the way that they describe it is that the younger communists seem to sort of understand um, the trans people should be welcome in that struggle. Uh, but the same friend doesn't really like hanging out with some of the older communists um, who still hang around there. So I guess I'm curious to hear, you know, how have you navigated some of those tensions or have you even, you know, encountered them? Um, and also, bonus question, why are TERFs so bad? Okay, we can get to that one in a second because the first part's got plenty enough to go off of. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of related to what I was already just uh, talking about with evangelicalism there is I, I think part of my journey to communism was kind of spurred on um by the same feelings as like moving towards like a more open Christianity because like, you know, I spent my entire young life being told like, these aren't real Christians. Like they've given up on the real gospel. And like, once I actually encountered LGBT affirming Christians and LGBT Christians, I was like, wait, what? Like this this was, you know, I was clearly lied to. Um, So I think much of that same sort of feeling was like, you know, when, once I started interacting with with communist uh, theory, that I was like, well, maybe I was lied to, um, because like, so I I first uh, dabbled um, in any communist theory. I don't even know how it happened, but I like interlibrary loaned a book of, written by Trotsky um, in my time at Kuiper, and I will forever be thankful to the librarian for not being like, what. <laughs> um, Um, and I read that and I was like okay well this isn't quite what I was told about like communism and I was like 
but you know this is Trotsky, and he must have been the the real communist, um, unlike all these people who betrayed communism. Um, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, and uh, then I, you know, briefly dabbled in like the whole Occupy thing. Um, like I went down to like the first night of Occupy Grand Rapids, which um, uh, unfortunately was, um, you know, as white as Grand Rapids is. Um, and uh, they occupied an area that's kind of known for being, you know, a little bit like uh, sacred to native cultures. And it was on the weekend of like Columbus Day. So, you know, really tasteful, you know, let's occupy the native space on Columbus Day. That's just a really uh, winning combination. But at the same time, I wanted to get involved because I was like, okay, there needs to be real change. Um, Because I had like loved Obama in 2008. And by 2011, I'm like, what the heck? Um, this is, you know, not what I was sold about politics changing and the world becoming better. And so I wanted to, I I was intrigued by the whole more radical things. And at the same time, I was also like really, truly coming out of the closet by then. And like, we had like an event related with Occupy that was called like Tranarchy, I think was the name. Um, it was about like trans people and radical thought. And it was, you know, really interesting stuff. Uh, but like Occupy Grand Rapids fizzled out, obviously Occupy fizzled out. Then, you know, I was still just like interested in all this, but like I didn't really know where to head with it. Uh, it really wasn't until Twitter that luckily gave me a little push towards like, here's some things to read. But like for me, diving into like, you know, left book, Twitter, communist, le- le- communist Twitter, left Twitter, you know, I, I, I thought it was a pretty open space in terms of LGBT issues. And like, obviously, you know, there's baggage regarding, you know, the history and stuff, but like, uh, I definitely, when I was first diving in and everything, I really felt no issue diving into communist organizing as a trans woman. Like it seemed pretty uh, open and I knew lots of other trans women that were communist and whereas like I felt like being in the church like uh, even like being at affirming churches just sometimes feels like such a battle I know there was a article like a humor a satire article going around that talks about uh, the trans woman who goes to the other side of the street because she doesn't want like the group of self-affirming liberals to um, all spend forever telling her how beautiful she is and how great it is that she's challenging gender and stuff. And it's like, you know, I, even in like the most affirming churches, it still felt like it, like me being trans was still just like the prime focus of everything. And like, I always had to be explaining it and be like this poster icon for transness. And I had to be the perfect example. Um, and like, even in, so I got a job as like a, as a youth pastor uh, at a church that I had helped in the process of them becoming open and affirming. Like I came and spoke about trans issues and they voted to become open and affirming. And I got a job there as a youth pastor um, for the high schoolers. And as soon as like I started actually transitioning on the job, suddenly uh, all these people that were like, well, I can be sort of okay with it. Like they were, once it was actually like a real thing, uh, they didn't, they, they weren't okay with it and they lost members. And then uh, like they kept me on, but uh, in the end, I got let go because of budget issues, which I'm making lots of error quotes on my end here. Um, but so basically, because of the funding they lost, because people left because of me, they cut my position, which was like three whole percent of the total budget and not like the newer person who had been hired, who was like 10 percent of the budget. 
um, lots of uh, feelings there um, that, you know, I felt like that was such a moment that I was like, you know, even in these churches that say they're affirming, like, is it really going to be affirming? Am I still going to have to just fight to exist, you know, like, sure, there's been some learning moments in communist organizing, but I, as far as being a trans woman, but like, I've never, I don't feel like I've ever had to quite like fight for my right to exist. Um, perhaps because other communist trans people have already made that fight uh, in the past, but like, you know, still a lot of negative feelings for me thinking about like, the fact that in most churches, I still felt like I had to fight for my right to exist, and that I was I always had to be hyper visible uh, to be valid as like a trans woman Christian. Like I had to be the example for everybody and show them that trans people are normal too, uh, sort of thing. So, um, you know, I think I've I felt very welcomed in radical organizing, and I've had so many struggles uh, in Christian churches and organizations that it just it makes it hard to even like have trust anymore. Um, I think because it just, uh, it's, you know, so many times of the church screwing you over that you just kind of give up at some point, like maybe other, you know, other people have kept pushing on and didn't give up, but I just was like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of having to do this again. Uh, thanks for like, I just get, just giving us all of this. It's so cool to hear. Um, <laughs> But now we're going to make a really um, sort of on-brand, patented Magnificast transition into talking about something a little bit different. Uh, you know it's a transition because I'm saying it very explicitly. Um, <laughs> there's no, no, uh, you, you can't, you're not wondering. It's just, that's what we're doing. We're transitioning to this other sort of thing. Um, so Transitioning is my expertise. Oh, geez. I didn't even realize that was, oh, oh my God. I'm so dumb. <laughs> You mess oh. up. Yeah, uh, man. It's it's the trans episode, so it's just really natural that we have a huge transition. Um. Cool. Uh, whoa. I'm so oblivious to the things I'm saying. Um, walking into these things. Okay. Well, anyways, speaking of Twitter, um, I suppose. <laughs> the transition is getting worse. I know. It's even, it's even worse now. <laughs> Dean, save me from this hell that I've put myself in. <laughs> okay. Yeah, here we go. Um, this is the, the divine judgment coming to rescue everyone and, uh, and release us from this terrible fate. Um, all right. So speaking of Twitter, as Matt was saying, uh, your, your brand is being like very into communism, which is very good. (laughs) Um, and I know like you've been moving away from certain Christian expressions and earlier you said, you know, you're on kind of a theology hiatus right now. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I'd be really interested to hear, you know, how do you square that communism with your Christian faith? Uh, how do you own that Christianity? Like you were talking about earlier, uh, and also kind of, uh, own that political heritage that you're you know still exploring and and really pursuing actively how do those things go together yeah um oh well i mean there's all sorts of insights uh but you know uh so you know my twitter brand uh i don't uh i don't know that i'd call it a brand but uh i suppose being really really into communism would be an accurate representation i've tried to make a communist linkedin happen but uh Everybody has failed to follow me there to, to the beauty of organizing on LinkedIn. Because uh, you know, I know there's a left book, which like I kind of uh, sometimes dabble in, but mostly just avoid. Um, and uh, there's uh, obviously left Twitter and communist Twitter and tanky Twitter and all these, you know, million different uh, aspects of Twitter. 
Uh, but you know that we're really missing this this undervalued potential of communist organizing on LinkedIn. Um, at the very least, you know, it provides us a really um, easy list of like managers, CEOs. Um, you know, um, it gets them all in one place. Um, uh, but anyways, um, yeah. So you know, once upon a time, um, I was just like an innocent little like. Amber Kelly 39 on, on Twitter. Um, and, uh, just talked about like trans issues and trying to be a trans woman pursuing a call to ministry. Um, and as I said, uh, it eventually turned into just communism nonstop. You know, it's been quite the journey. I think there's a lot of amazing insights to, um, be offered about like organizing and looking at history and looking at I mean, there's so many things that we could dive into that we'll kind of leave for specific questions but you know i think for me it was yeah, it was a natural flow um i was, I, I recently uh, spent some time hanging out with uh with roland bohr and we both share that reformed uh background and i said um i said well you know reform people they either like become universalists uh, they become like the hyper conservative reform people who, you know, think about like whether God damned everyone to hell before or after the fall. Um, and uh, uh, then the other option is that reform people become communists. Because um, it seems like those are the main three options that I ever see happening. Um, and so, you know, I think for, for a lot of it, it felt like a really um, natural flow. Um, but then obviously like there was so much, uh, baggage between the two because like, um, religion has been such a tool for reaction and especially reaction like against communist, uh, parties, communist government, communist organizing, um, and communism has for good reason often been quite suspicious about Christianity. Um, so, you know, I think it's logically thinking like uh, analyzing the world. It seemed like a really natural place to go, but then I had to really work through um, what exactly does that mean? You know, how do you deal with these sorts of things? Um, and I think that, um, yeah, you know, for <laughs> uh, at this point, I'm not quite sure sometimes, um, uh, but um, you know, I think, um, for the longest time, I uh, was in, at the beginning. It was just like, oh well, I'm a religious person who just happens to be slightly interested in communism and like the insights it could offer into theology. I think that was a few years of just like kind of looking at it, but then like uh, had the um, to try and more fully integrate it, um, and did a lot of like writing during my time at CTS. Um, uh, the good CTS, not Calvin Seminary, but my time at Chicago Seminary. <laughs> um, but so I think that, you know, it was a really, um, there was lots to be looked at because I mean, liberation theology already provides like a really uh, solid background to me in terms of thinking about like Marxism and uh, religion. Uh, but, you know, I think that due to like the reactionary forces that those many of those people were often up against, they often like hesitated to fully call themselves communists um, or to like fully make the jump to like joining a party because they were um, 
it was just not possible for them sort of thing. Um, or they were afraid to perhaps. Um, so for me, it was like, okay, well, I really want to dive in and actually think like, what would a truly communist theology look like? And, uh, I did my whole thesis about that. And like, I looked at like, um, post-colonial theory and I looked at queer theory and theology. Um, and I looked at Roland Bohr's books. Um, and I wrote what I thought was like this most beautiful hundred page thesis, uh, to which I unfortunately only received passing and not passing with distinction. And I'm still very bitter about that one. Um, but, uh, so I wrote this whole big thesis and now like already I'm like, is it actually any good? Um, you know, but I suppose that's the life of being somewhat academic is automatically thinking that your work is absolute shit after you've already finished it. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, more of the direction that I've been headed recently is, um, kind of thinking about like, like, you know, moving, not just like mixing the theology and the communism together into like a little, uh, you know, Harry Potter potion or something, but, uh, uh, trying to think like realistically, think materialistically about like, what does Christianity specifically look like when it is, you know, under the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, when it is people centered, when it is, um, people focused, um, you know, what, what would that difference be? Um, because like, even, even in so many of the really radical Christian churches that I've been in, they still rely on, on like a couple really, really rich donors to keep that church going, um, who still have some fairly conservative views. Like, so how do you, um, how do you truly move to like, uh, people religion? Like what, what does that look like? What will that look like? Um, how do, um, religious people get involved in radical organizing? Um, cause I think, you know, it's, it's really easy for Christians to take over everything. It's kind of what we do. Um, and, uh, like, you know, I see radical movements and then like Christians automatically gotta be like, Oh, well I gotta go be there. I gotta go be present with the people, but I still really want to lead everything. Like how do we, how do Christians, how do specifically like, ministers, how do, uh, religious people not just like come in and take over and try and run things their own way, but instead, you know, how do we listen to the people? How do we, how do we change our theology to be more people centered um, and to be more focused on like the material struggles and the material reality of people's lives? Well, on that point of sort of like interacting with the world um, and how that's been a pretty important piece to kind of take a step back from your work, um, which I totally get. In light of all that, um, following you on social media, um, I've just kind of seen some of your um, more interesting travels. You've been in Vietnam and in China um, and doing some cool stuff. It kind of struck me as something that was a little bit funny. I mean, it's like a really interesting thing to do, uh, go live somewhere else. And I think that's awesome. Um, but like mm -hmm. reactionaries are like always telling leftists that, you know, if you don't like capitalism, you should just uh, move to China or something. Um, and it seems like you're someone who took that advice a little bit more seriously than the rest of us. Um, <laughs> So, um, what have you learned? What kind of like judgments um, would you make about living in communist countries? Or could you name a few yeah. things that you were like impressed by, and maybe some things that you 
uh, might have been put off by or whatever. What are the ups and downs of it? Oh, ooh, yeah. So many. So this could be the entire podcast in itself. Um, but um, yeah, so I um, after I finished um, seminary, I so to back it up a little bit during my final year, um, I started talking about doing a PhD uh, about Marxism and theology um, uh, in China. Like the specific topic was that I was going to look at the works of Lu Xiaoqi, especially like uh, how to be a good communist and uh, think about self-cultivation and like how that's present in like Asian thought in general, like Asian religions, how that's present in Christianity and kind of uh, bring all those together to think about like ethics and think about how we act and how we need to cultivate ourselves. Um, so very, very theological. Um, and, but so we, we put in the whole application and, uh, got everything going and like they considered it, but, uh, they decided that I needed to be fluent in Mandarin to, um, to be able to, um, uh, do the PhD. And, uh, so I was like, uh, in the meanwhile, while I had been applying, I had, uh, started researching, uh, getting like a TESOL certificate, uh, because I figured, uh, if I was going to be studying abroad for a PhD that I could at least get the certificate and maybe make a little money on the side, uh, while doing the program, like teaching English, uh, doing lessons for people. So I was like, well, it seems a worthwhile investment. Um, and I found a program that, uh, operates out of, uh, Ho Chi Minh city and out of Hanoi, um, in Vietnam. And I was like, oh, cool. Even better. Cause like Ho Chi Minh is up there in terms of like my favorite thinkers. Um, and uh, so I wanted, I was like, okay, well, this is great. Like I get my opportunity to go study uh, in Vietnam and get to be there for a little while and then go off and do my PhD in China. But then I got the rejection for the PhD and I was like, okay, well, we're going to, um, we're going to just go enjoy Vietnam then and uh, start with teaching English and then see where it goes. Um, and so um, we sold our house, which uh, was pretty great because we had bought it when the market was a little bit lower and we made enough money to pay off some of our student loans. Um, uh, unfortunately, we still have a giant ton of them. Um, but um, we, so we came over in July uh, to Hanoi. Um, and then uh, literally while I was on the flight to Hanoi, I had done an interview for a job in China and I got the offer um, for this uh, international kindergarten. Um, I got the offer while we were, um, flying in the air to Hanoi. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, we'll just head to China once uh, my course is done sort of thing. Um, uh, bureaucracy is a bit of a mess, uh, because it ended up taking a little bit longer. We ended up in Hanoi for three months. Uh, my course was like the first month and we thought we were going to be headed there in like early to, to China in early September. Uh, but paperwork got held up in the U.S., and then visa process took forever uh, in Hanoi for China, and it was just a little bit of a pain. So we didn't make it to China now until uh, just about exactly one month ago. It was uh, October 17 um, that we got here. Uh, and uh, so it's been really great. Um, yeah, like you said, I decided to take everyone's advice um, and come to a communist country. Uh, you know, I probably could have done Cuba because it was closer to Michigan, um, but wasn't quite sure I was ready for uh, tropical um, c 
Caribbean weather. I had been to the Dominican Republic once, and that weather did not really agree with me. So I was like, ah, Cuba's probably not my cup of tea. Um, but yeah, Vietnam was really great. Um, it was a bit easier to adjust to than China has been so far. Uh, I think that there, yeah, there's a lot more expats that live in Hanoi, so uh, there's a little bit more like Western-ish kind of stuff. So it made it a little bit uh, easier of an adjustment. Uh, whereas China has definitely been an adjustment, um, getting used to new things and new ways of doing things. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's been really amazing, like uh, the development, the um, seeing, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to put into words, like, but just like seeing that the people, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, I guess it would be in comparison to like thinking about the United States. Where I think, you know, that so many people in the U.S. in terms of, like, just engaging the world around them is, like, really negative and really, like, um, like there's no hope. Or, you know, on one end, like, the immigrants are stealing our jobs. And on the other end, like, let's just burn down the whole country sort of um, radicalism. Um, and, like, you know, there's not, um, it, it, there's not much hope. But, like... You know, I like immediately got the feeling in Vietnam and in China that like people are excited, like they're um, excited about what the future holds. They're excited um, for the developments. They're excited for uh, it, it just seemed much more people, people focused, people powered, um, that people felt um, empowered to kind of make their own way. Whereas in the U.S. that just I just didn't recently ever have that feeling. Um, and, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm not going to lie that seeing all the hammers and sickles everywhere isn't wonderful. Uh, but, you know, I don't want anybody accusing me of being like the, the, the red flag flying, uh, is all it takes to be a communist. Um, but, uh, like, I think it's, you know, it's been really exciting to see it up close. Like, um, you know, as much as, yes, it's a market economy, like it's still, like if you've studied about it, um, like you, and it, it feels different in person. Like you could definitely just come and be like, oh yeah, this is exactly the same as the U.S., but it's not. Um, and I, I mean, that's hard to explain. Um, I've, I've tried to think through it of how to explain it exactly, but it hasn't really happened. Um, and uh, but it just um, the, it feels different, and especially. Like looking at like the cost of things, looking at uh, the focus on providing lots of affordable housing, like it's just such different development focuses, such different um, where money is going focuses that it's about making life easier for people. It's about making sure that people can afford things, making sure that uh, healthcare is easy and good and affordable to everybody, making sure that um everybody can eat you know affordably and not like be starving making sure that education is good like the funding is is going towards good stuff like i found out um in china that they actually have um like a rule that um that a community if a school is like charging too expensive like a private school is charging too expensive fees like the community can actually like vote to take away their certificate like it's you know, pretty, that's pretty badass. Um, yeah. like there's just these everyday little things that I notice, and like, you know, they, the, they actually spend money on like providing good public transit. They, um, you know, they're, 
the, every, the development, everything just actually seems focused on like actually getting down to everybody in society. Like even in, so like in Vietnam, like, you know, like we lived near like a little tiny market. It wasn't like some big, huge market. And it wasn't like a huge tourist hotspot. But like, you know, there was a little lady that just like carried the food around like on the typical, I can't remember what it's called, uh, but like just carried around food to sell it sort of thing. And I see her just like pull out a smartphone and I'm just like, what? Like Everybody has smartphones. Um, and, uh, you know, just like it seems like, like, yeah, it's definitely got its contradictions of uh, being a socialist oriented market economy. Um, but that. It, it just seems very much like the development is focused on helping everybody as a whole, helping the people, helping the, the least in society to, um, you know, poverty alleviation, uh, things like that. It's just a much bigger real uh, concern for like economics over here. So it's, it's really, it's been cool to just see in person, um, and like, I'm not going to lie that it wasn't also really cool to, um, uh, you know, go see uh, Ho Chi Minh's mausoleum. So I got to be, you know, up close and personal with Ho Chi Minh's body. Um, it was only like five feet away with guards and stuff in front of it. Mm. But um, it was still really cool. And like, you know, it was a it was just like a random Thursday in the middle of September. Um, I don't even remember what day it was. But it was like a day that had no consequence to it. And there was probably still like a thousand people there to come see his body that morning. Like, um, it was just, you know, it was cool to see that he still means so much to so many people. And like in the city that we're in Changsha is, uh, it's in the same vicinity as like, as uh, chairman Mao's birthplace. Um, and, uh, so like, there's a big, like, uh, mountain that they built actually out of concrete that's like got his face on it and like they got like a poem that he wrote about Changsha like actually like inscribed on like this big stone and it was really cool to go see um and it turns out it's actually really close to Lu Xiaoqi's birthplace and I'm hoping to make it there since he's my hashtag favorite that's really amazing I mean you spent all this time in communist countries now and uh not just thinking about communism but actually living uh in it um so i guess our our maybe our good sign-off question for you would be uh why should christians be communists <laughs> oh yeah that definitely could be a long-winded question okay um why should christians be communists why shouldn't they um there's my hot take um, <laughs> christians should be a communist because they should give a shit about the actual world um uh you know we're uh, already seeing huge effects of climate change. We're already seeing uh, the rise of fascism and most of these neoliberal Western democracies. Like, um, shit is hitting the fan. Uh, why shouldn't Christians be communists? Um, it's time to <laughs> it's time to step it up. Um, but you know, I think that in short, that um, Christians need to understand materialism, like. They need, they need to interact with the world. They need to interact with concrete things. And they need to understand that, like, people are suffering through very real issues uh, in, in their lives, like, and that we need to address that as Christians, you know, that we need to, uh, um, I'm thinking of the Magnificat, I almost just called it the Magnificat, <laughs> um, 
uh, but you know, thinking of uh, casting down the the, the mighty um, and lifting up the lowly. Um, you know, like uh, Christianity can be such a tool for reaction, um, but we shouldn't let it be. Um, we there there's you know centuries of uh, of radical Christians trying to push back against it just being used. Um, and you know, I worry that if we don't fight back for the soul of Christianity as something radical, um, or if we don't um, show that Christianity can truly mean something to the world, that uh, that we're losing something. Um, and then I think that Christians are really missing out if they don't uh, take a look at uh, you know uh, revolutionary socialism, at Marxism, Leninism as a way of beginning to think about like what it actually means to put the people into power, what it actually means to move from being something um, that's just like a social club to moving to be something that's truly changing the world. Um, so I think that's my try attempt at a condensed take on that one. It's a good take. It's good. Yeah, <laughs> you did it. Okay, I try. uh well thanks a lot for coming on the show ember um it was really hard for us to all work out our three different time zones um, but i'm really happy that it all panned out thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon patreon.com slash the magnificast follow us on twitter um likes on facebook join our facebook group the magnificast basement that's important um Hey, take Dean's class. Sign up. It's not very expensive, even. It's really, uh, uh, I, I mean, you don't want to advertise your sort of like educational program as being of good value, but it is because it's it's like ninety dollars <laughs> in Canada, and that's pretty good for a grad seminar. So, I don't know. Do it. Take take it. Yeah, you know, w- watch the exchange rates for the next few days. This is how I live my life. Uh, watch the exchange rates for the next few days. Decide when the optimal time is to spend your American dollars on a Canadian thing and then jump on it. Uh, if you're in Canada, then just spend your regular old money and don't watch the exchange rate because you might feel a little bit bad <laughs> about how far your dollar stretches. Uh, it's a pretty cool class, I think. Uh, I'm really excited to teach it. It's 13 weeks. And uh, here's a couple of highlights. You're going to learn about a wild Catholic poet who joined the Communist Party of Canada and he became the most famous poet in China and the USSR. Uh, you get to learn about a, a priest who was there at the founding of the IWW. Um, you get to learn about what Huey P. Newton said about how Black Panthers should join the church. Uh, lots and lots of good, good Christians. All your faves are here. And uh, it's going to be a really exciting kind of broad uh, class looking specifically at like the history of movements more so than the kind of theoretical exchanges between um, theologians or philosophers as important as they are. So if you're interested in seeing some kind of on the ground stuff, uh, get into it. You know, most podcasts, uh, when they get kind of popular, uh, they just make a book, but look, you made a class, you made a whole educational situation um, that that people can engage in. So there you go. Taking a sort of, uh, different approach to this whole podcast business yeah this is a new revolutionary approach uh move over chapo we're teaching a class <laughs> uh you can also download our ebook uh 33 ways to make your <laughs> dumb podcast um, appeal to people on the internet start a class <laughs> about it 
33, one for each year of Jesus' <laughs> life before he entered adult ministry. Oh, man, I didn't even think about that. Um, I'm full of... That's the product I am. I'm full of bad, weird jokes I'm backing my way into tonight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, okay, well, let me take one, just one quick minute. Yeah. That transition you did, you you were doing a great job. Yeah, thank uh, you. You you know, yeah, you're, you're a sweet boy, and uh, you were just trying your sweetest job to be a sweet boy, and I hope that everybody sees that. <laughs> <laughs> just, yep. Okay, cool. Thanks for listening to Magnificast again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and I love it. And it's so good, and I love them 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 beats. Uh, and the outro music is by The Logical Spoon. I also love that song. Never get tired of listening to either of them, honestly. Um, so uh, cool. Thank you for all this good music, people that have contributed it. Um, all right, see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.